Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode number 10. My guest in this episode is Federal Member of Parliament and leader of Catter's Australian Party, Bob Catter. I was excited to sit down with a man who, for 40 years, has been one of the most colourful and recognisable figures in Queensland and Australian politics. I was eager to look beyond the short 10-second grabs we get on the nightly news or the distorted reality of an argumentative, jockeying panel show. I wanted to learn more about his opinions, values and thought process, and I wanted to know who has inspired him. What are the philosophies that guide him. I honestly didn't know how this conversation would go. Depending on which commentary you believe, Bob is either a right-wing loon, a champion of rural Australia, a gun-loving danger to society, a warrior for the little man against corporate giants, a close-minded homophobe, or a passionate Australian. Whether you love or loathe his opinions, one thing cannot be disputed. Bob Catter is a survivor. After spending 18 years in Queensland Parliament, he is well into his 23rd year as a member of the Federal House of Representatives. In all that time, Bob has never lost an election. He's won elections as part of the country and national parties, as an independent, and as the leader of his own Catter's Australian Party. He was a long-serving member of Sir Joe Bjorki Peterson's infamous Queensland Nationals Government. In the 2010 hung Parliament, he along with two other independent MPs, held the fate of the Australian government in his hands. Bob Catter is polite, personable, opinionated and forthright. He is completely unguarded in the chat you're about to hear. Bob tells us about his leadership hero, a man who lived more than a thousand years ago. He explains how his simultaneous hatred for Gough Whitlam and admiration for Sir Joe propelled him into political life. He passionately weighs in on the gun debate, and he tells us of his hatred for do-gooders. He gives some intriguing insider knowledge into some of Australia's most controversial and colourful politicians. For me, beyond all the issues, the memories, the stories, the characters, one question emerged. Is Bob Catter a study in cognitive bias run wild, or is he a brave defender of Australian tradition and values? I'll let you be the judge. Bob Catter, you've spent a total of 40 years in Parliament, 18 in Queensland and 22 in Federal Parliament. After so much time in the public eye, do you think that you're a well-understood figure? Uh, no, I don't. Where, yeah. where do you think the, the misunderstanding is? Uh, I would say um, a lot of people look at me and think, because I wear a big hat, that I'm uh, different, that I really belong to that bunch of bushwhackers out there or Durongos or something so influenced by American television, redneck variety, you know. Um, one of my son-in-laws has a T-shirt that says, you say redneck as if it's a bad thing. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I think that that's a rough image, uh, a likeable numbskull, you know, um, bushy. Um, pretty good Australian, you know, like that's that sort of comment they'd make, yeah. Um, whereas um, it saddens me because uh, 
all the intellectual firepower that I'm able to bring upon an issue um, is seen through a screen of uh, prejudice. So what's the real bobcatter then? If, if that's what they're seeing, the, the big hat and the bushy, and you've said that the real bobcatter brings intellectual horsepower to a debate, why do you think, apart from just the fact that you wear a hat, why do you think that, that the golf exists in the way that you're seen and the, the real value that you bring? wish I could answer that question to my own satisfaction. If I didn't wear the hat, no one would know me in Australia. Um, uh, so it's a trade-off. But when it comes to intellectual debate, the one I like most is the gun debate because the intellectual, um, scientific, if I could use that word, is so strong on the side of the pro-gun issue that there's really no debate at all. So when you get into the debate, I can't help but smirk the whole time. Like, you know, I always leave out there America because... I'll quote the figures from Australia and then I'll quote the figures from Europe and I won't say anything about America and they'll say, oh, yeah, you've left out America, eh? Well, that's very convenient for you. And I said, yeah, and uh, you'll tell me that America's the highest um, gun deaths rate in the world. And it has. You know, and I said, actually, it's pretty close to it. So you're pretty right saying that. Um, but see, you don't do any research. <laughs> you just take a superficial sweep at it, right? You don't actually understand what the hell you're talking about. Um, because if you have a look at America and say, what part of America? Remember, it's the United States. So let's have a look at the states. Who has the highest gun death rate in America? Oh, need I tell you, Washington, D.C. Where are the most draconian gun laws in America? It's almost total ban. Washington, D.C. It's, of course, the conscience for Obama and for Clinton, way out lefties. But, of course... They're not game to do anything like cowards. They're not game to do anything in the wider American America. So they just concentrate their firepower inside the state that they control, Washington, D.C., seat of government. So they just do it there. So they've got 11 deaths per 100,000, which is easily the highest in America. I think it's twice anywhere else in America, right? And then have a look at who has the lowest death rate with guns. And again, easily the lowest. There's no one. You can double their figures and there's still no one in sight. The two hunting states, North and South Dakota. Um, South Dakota has the biggest gun shop in the world. Um, um, it's the home of all shooters and shooting. Lowest death rate. They haven't even got, they haven't even got one per 100,000. They don't even score one on the Richter scale. The other one scores 11, uh, which is the same phenomenon in Europe, Switzerland and East Germany. Same phenomenon in Australia. Before we had any gun laws in this state, we had eight deaths with guns. Our neighbours, New South Wales, had 38, not eight, 38 deaths with guns um, with very tough legislation. And Victoria, with draconian legislation, you know, their population is 50% bigger than us. We had eight, they should have 12. They didn't have 12, they didn't have 24, they didn't have 36, they didn't have 48, they had 54 deaths with guns. We with no laws at all at eight. So I just point out to you that, you know, a lot of times my message gets lost because of the prejudices that are working uh, out there. That's the nature of humankind. I'm not really complaining or bitter about it. So I wasn't going to ask you particularly about policy, but seeing you brought up the guns thing, I saw you on The View last week 
And <coughs> I, I heard you make that point about North Dakota. Is it North Dakota or South Dakota? I forget. Both. Both. There's two separate states. And I, when, when I was watching you on the show, I was dying to ask you or, or make the point that it would be very hard in the United States to judge the effectiveness of gun laws because it's so easy to cross from Maryland to Virginia into Washington, D.C. So to judge gun law effectiveness in that dynamic <clears throat> is, is probably pretty difficult. Same here. Um, you know, um, the gun laws in, um, in, in Tasmania were uh, fairly draconian, not, not as draconian as Victoria, but, but very, very tight and very restrictive. Um, I would say that every page of the legislation would have been breached by that uh, piece of evil scum uh, that did the terrible work that he did at Port Arthur. I mean, have looked no further than the death of his parents. I mean, the death of his parents would have warranted any responsible police force to ensure that that bloke was never let near a gun in the rest of his life. Not only was he in possession of all his firearms and clearly allowed by the police to be in possession of firearms insofar as they knew who he was, they knew how many misdemeanors he had, they knew that he was not allowed to have any, um, and they knew he was extremely dangerous and they did nothing about it. Um, uh, but not only did a firearm, he had one of the best killing machines ever developed by humankind to be used by one person in a close situation. And he was allowed to have them and that's the... He, he was allowed to have them. And you say, well, he was breaking the law. Well, what use is the law if you're not going to enforce it? You know, I mean, don't talk to me about laws if you're not going to enforce them. And, uh, and it wasn't enforced, and I hate to say it, but I think there was some cowardice on the police involved. Um, they were too scared to go out and confront him. Um, but I might be being very unfair to them there. But one thing that the whole world knows is that the laws said that bloke should never have been allowed anywhere near a firearm. And there's similarly with the Hoddle Street massacre, similarly with the Surrey Hills massacre, I think it was Hoddle Street, the bloke was up on charges for knifing a person three days before. And he's got two automatic pistols registered in his, in his possession. I mean, what were the police doing? I mean, what were they doing? Well, I'll tell you what they were doing. They were running around like they're doing where I come from, and I better not be too specific here, um, but in one little area. Um, they're running around and two pensioners got in touch with me because they can't afford to buy a gun safe. And they said, Bobby, just 22 was my dad's. You know, it's about 60 years old. I'm going to put in a gun safe? Um, you know, it's a five-shot bolt action. 22, oh my Lord, geez, a dangerous weapon, this one. You know, and uh, when well, they're going to come around and raid my house. Well, you've got good law-abiding citizens living in terror, terrorised by the police, and yet the police are not going and getting the likes of that evil... Uh, crazy, lunatic scum. And I use the word evil because I am sick and tired of everyone saying, oh, you know, he's, you know, he wasn't potty trained or his mummy bashed him or he was molested or some bloody thing, you know. There is an element of evil in there. And, um, in Martin Bryant, you're talking Martin about? Martin Bryant. Oh. But I, I haven't got a fresh memory of the other murders, but in each case um, that I can recall, they were extremely ugly human beings. They were terrible people. So what do the two sides of the gun debate boil down to in your mind? Um, people who believe in the power of the individual 
and people that are scared by the power of the individual. And that gets back to your leadership thing. A bloke who is a natural-born leader, he doesn't want the police to look after his house. He'll look after his house. And he'll set the example for his neighbour to look after his house. And if everyone looks after their house, we don't have to spend $6,000 million a year in the state um, on police. Um, now, um, um, and the police will be doing the sort of work that they should be doing. Now, you know, leadership can also gravitate to the uh, mobsters of this world. I mean, there's some very great leadership shown by the... And in fact, the best book probably ever written on leadership was Reisman's book. It was written in the 60s, I think, but it's still on a textbook um, in the universities today. But Reisman did a study of the gangs in New York. And um, I think if I was to pick a central theme, um, it was that the leader of the gang was the person who best represented the values of the group. So if you had a bloke in this context of the gangs in New York who had a, an unrestricted brutality and violence, people tended to follow him. And I, um, if he could organise mobs into money-making machines, um, then people followed him. But for those of us particularly went through the universities in the 60s and 70s, very heavily influenced by Reisman's work. So tell me about the sort of leader that you see yourself as. You're obviously a man who's well-read. I, I know that you're a voracious reader. You, you like to look into history and, and pick out prominent characters and, and learn about the way they went about things. Who's influenced you and what sort of leader would you describe yourself as? I, I think, I, I always think the um, figure I most admire in human history is a bloke which we now know as Alfred the Great. Um, and um, he was one of seven brothers, and um, he wanted to be a priest. When the Vikings first seriously hit in England in their first serious raid, um, he was in the monastery translating psalms, and his brothers came, handed him his sword, and said, you've got to come out and fight. And uh, he said, no, 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 you fight. I don't want to be king or anything like that. Like, he was the youngest of them. Um, he said, you fight, you know, uh, that's that's fine, you know. I'll pray for you. <laughs> you know, that'll be a lot more help than me fighting. I'm not a real good fighter, um, but I'm a real good prayer. And um, anyway, his brother just sort of dragged him out by the air, handed him the sword. And the great tragedy of his life, I suppose, was that instead of being a gentle priest and a wonderful spiritual leader, that he had to carry a sword in his hand for the rest of his life as he fought the Vikings for protection of his country. And... Uh, there's very seldom in human history uh, a group of people that equal the savagery of the Vikings. And the Normans, you know, they were organised savagery. They were infinitely more dangerous still. And they ruled Jerusalem right across to Norway <laughs> um, and England. So he had to confront one of the most savage peoples that the world had ever seen, arguably more savage than the Genghis Khan hordes um, he had to confront, as also did Charlemagne. And um, both of them were characterised by extremely deep Christian belief. You know, both of them were, you know, um, their whole lives centred around their, their Christian beliefs. But Alfred took it to a, a degree that few people in history have ever taken it. 
he forgave his enemies. Remember his enemies were the Vikings. And they had to promise not to fight him again. And they had to become Christians, baptised Christians. And one Viking claimed he'd been baptised 28 times. <laughs> just to make sure, yeah, hey? Yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, he, they just treated the, you know, the, the, the baptism and the promise with absolute contempt. I mean, they're Vikings, you know. <laughs> the wild pirate raiders, you know. No principles except their loyalty to the ship. But in the end, he completely destroyed them. Um, and he was... King of England, which he never wanted to be. But here's a little tiny kingdom, you know, they call them kings, but they're little tiny. Here he is of England. My station property was bigger, probably bigger than his kingdom. But he ended up um, uniting all of uh, England and uh, becoming the father of the English-speaking peoples. Remember, the English-speaking peoples are ruled by a black man, not a white man uh, at, at this time in history. And that also is a tribute to the English-speaking peoples and their culture and their spiritual Christian belief system. Winston Churchill, in his History of the English-Speaking Peoples, which is the finest literature I have ever read by a long way, whatever else he may have done or not done, that is just the finest piece of literature ever. Um, but in his book uh, on Alfred, and I'm not going to go into the fact that he was a very clever ruler. I mean, he paid the Dane girl for which his own people hated him. He taxed them to pay the Danes to stay at home, right? And for five or six years, his people hated him for the Dane girl. At the end of that five years, he had enough money to put a serious army into the field and completely annihilate the Vikings. But, you know, I mean, that's what leadership's about. You sacrifice your popularity, you sacrifice everything because you believe that if I do it this way, we can win, you know, we can win through. Um, but I, I, I'm going sideways. Winston Churchill had the same with my book, you know, it was 1,400 pages, it was cut down to 450. But similarly with him, with his four volumes, History of the English Being People, they wanted to cut it, you know, and um, he had terrible fights. And they wanted to cut out the story of Alfred burning the cakes. And he said, if I cut every single one of the 2,000 pages out and had to leave only one page in there, that is the one page that I would live in. So don't cut that one. But the point of the story is, see, the point of the story is, is not some silly little fairy tale about you know, uh, King Arthur burning the cakes. The point of the story is he's on the run. He hasn't got a single follower. This just, he's leading no one. He's just running around as an outlaw in the forest and he hasn't even got anywhere to sleep for the night. And he pulls out of the house because it's bloody cold and rainy and, and says, can you put me up for the night? And they said, oh, all right, if you, we're going to go out in the fields tomorrow, but if you stay at home and look after the bread in the oven, you know, um, you can camp over there in the shed for the night or whatever they call sheds in those days. And, um, well, the next morning, of course, He's supposed to be saying the cakes don't burn and he's trying to figure out how he can get two people to follow him <laughs> instead of nobody and, uh, and he burns the cakes. But that a man could have such self-belief in his God and in his people that even though he had not a single person to follow him, not a bed to sleep in for the night, he still believed that he could rescue his nation from the Vikings and create 
are wonderful people. And, um, and two great quotes that come down to us from Alfred. I have not put down in writing many laws of my own, for I do not know what will be suitable for those that follow after me. A humble, simple statement by arguably the greatest man in human history. Um, the people that he put together have ruled the world now for nearly half a millennium. Do you see a little bit of Alfred in yourself? No, but I would hope, I would hope that people like myself, in fact, I would hope every person, you know, would emulate um, um, Alfred the Great, a humble, simple man till the day that he died. No heirs and graces, no big castles, not a single castle left to his name, you know. If it wasn't for some of the chronicles, we wouldn't even know that he was there. But uh, we don't see any um, great Edinburgh castles or palaces or any of those things. Um, that was not the man who he was. Bob, you are the middle of three generations of Cata parliamentarians. Your father, of course, served in the federal parliament for 22 or 23 years. Your son, Robbie, is in the Queensland parliament. But I've heard it said that you catters don't see yourselves as career politicians. It just turns no, out we, that way. I, I, that is very true. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, the most powerful member of our family actually was great-granddad, um, Richard Arida, and we, you know, our sort of family line on that side are, are Aridas, um, even though our name happens to be Catter. But Richard Arida, as in the history books, he um, gave £3,000 to the strike fund I think it was in 1894. Now, um, he's a very rich man. He was a migrant from a little country in the Middle East called Lebanon. He was a very, very devout Christian. Um, he completely isolated himself from his society. The poor people didn't like rich people much, so he wasn't going to be with them. And the rich people, they wouldn't talk to him because he'd, he'd been backing the poor people. He couldn't care less, you know, if you knew the man he was... His enemies would say extremely arrogant and his friends would say, he didn't care what you thought about him, absolutely irrelevant to him. But he exercised great power through his great wealth. Um, he exercised great power and he used that power for the good. We only had a school in Charter Towers because he built the school. Being an arrogant beggar, he built Catholic schools. <laughs> to go to Catholic school. <laughs> but we had a schooling. The only way we got to school, there were 10,000 people on the field then. Later on, there's 40,000 people. Um, at the stage, 10,000 people. And he built the school. We had no crane, so we had a little toy crane at the Port of Townsville. So we went over to America, paid his own money, and came back with two giant cranes so that North Queensland could have a properly operating port with the two big. He hoped he'd get repaid, but there was absolutely no onus on the Port Authority or the government to repay him. He did eventually get repaid. But. Um, you know, you sort of talk about leadership. Well, you know, he tried. You know, all the village fathers in Charters Towers tried to get school at the mining field. When they wouldn't do it, just, he just went out and built one. You know, <clears throat> when he tried to get them to build a proper port and get cranes, and they didn't, he just went bought the cranes. And uh, I think he was the most powerful member of the family, but we've always been involved in power. I don't, you know, get that wrong. But, uh, you know, probably... We ones that have been involved in politics have exercised far less power than, you know, great granddad who he wasn't involved in, but he wouldn't have touched it with a 40 foot barge pole. <laughs> what was it like growing up with a grandfather like that who had a legacy 
a father who was a federal great grandfather, a great grandfather, yeah, 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 a father who was a federal politician. What impression did that make on you as well, a young man? Well, see, I didn't really grow up with a father as a member of parliament, you know. Um, um, it be, had later in life for him. There was, you know, I was, I was, you know, 23, 24, something like that, uh, when he went uh, became uh, a member of parliament. Um, but, you know, we were by Cloncurry standards, wealthy, I suppose, well off most certainly. And um, and we had the Arida name, so, you know, that counted for one hell of a lot. People took you very, very seriously. But, yeah, no, my father, my father did have passion for politics, but uh, I couldn't say that I did uh, in the sense that um, they asked me to stand down from the local party branch. <laughs> Why was that? What did you do? Utterly disinterested. <laughs> I showed no interest at all. And, uh, um, and I thought I'd be upset about it, you know, and ego burnt and all that sort of thing and my political ambitions burnt and all that sort of thing. But I, I really couldn't have cared less about it, you know. And uh, similarly with my son, he had absolutely no intention of going into uh, to politics um, he was asked to go on the council and he just gave him a flat no in writing um, when they wouldn't sort of believe him. He put it in writing to them. A bit similar to myself, um, sort of trapped sideways against your will a bit. But still, you know, there's that leadership arrogant thing. I mean, if somebody's got to go out there and uh, do the fighting. Well, mate, hate to tell you, <laughs> you're the arrogant. It's your duty to go out there and do it. But I, but I would hope that everyone is an arrator in that sense, you know, that, you know, everyone should say, the decision be made here, I've got to go and make that decision. And I felt terrible when people, when I first won as an independent, they kept saying how brilliant I was. No, it, it was every single one of those 35,000 people that voted for me, they had to do something they had never done before in their lives, which was change that box that they were ticking for the ALP or for the LNP, and they had to change it and ticket for an independent. They'd never done that before, never contemplated doing that before. Albeit right. an independent they <clears> knew very well. Yeah, but but Cata made them have to make a decision. But each of them, when they just put that tick in their box, was showing leadership. I mean, that's that's what I consider leadership. I disagree with Reesman. I mean, when I say leadership, I'm talking about moral courage to do what is the right thing. That's what I'm talking about. And, you know, my great shining star up there is the story of Alfred, you know, uh, father of the English-speaking people. So you say you were you were disinterested in those early years. What was it that eventually pushed you into the Queensland par- Parliament at about 30 years of age, I think? When I was writing Mystery of Australia, it amazed me that I hated Whitlam so much, you know, and it was my hatred of Whitlam that sort of precipitated me sideways into Parliament. But that wasn't enough to get me interested. But when old Jockey Peterson, his ugly-looking old bloke, and he sort of couldn't string word, two words together coherently, and he, he had an unpronounceable foreign name. I mean, you're supposed to anglicise your names when you come to Australia, at least I expect them to. And I thought, that's it. The country party is finished. You know, <laughs> looking at this bloke, we are gone. That's all I've read right over that one, which is another reason why I wasn't interested in politics either, because I, I thought, no future, you know, we're... I was committed with the country party and I was absolutely no hope or future. But when he started to make Whitlam bleed, I thought, Gee, and that's the essence of leadership, see. He was saying, get out there and fight. You're either on my side or you're on Whitlam's side. And I thought, jeez, I'd better get in and help this old bloke. 
Yeah, he wasn't so bad after that. Uh, when he bumbles, he's actually very cunning. It's <laughs> a different interpretation um, upon uh, all his attributes. Um, you know, he's Danish, and you know, they know how to fight that mob, you know, Vikings, you know. Um, um, you put a different... But, but it was not Whitlam by himself and my hatred and fear, I suppose, of Whitlamism. Um, he cut tariffs by 25%, and um, fairly or unfairly, I'm regarded as the last combatant for protectionism in this country. But uh, remember, I was brought up in the country party, and the foundation stone of all protectionism was, to some extent, the ALP, but mostly the country party. Um, so I was steeped in protectionism. But he just took 25% across the board off the tariffs, 100,000 manufacturing workers lost their jobs in Australia, and he couldn't care less. The inflation rate was 26% in one quarter. I mean, it was really weird. You'd go down with 20 bucks to buy the groceries. <laughs> it's not enough money to buy the groceries. You have to go back home, get another 20 bucks. You know, we'd never seen inflation like that ever in this country, and it was really scary. I mean, the treasure, uh, every time you saw him on television, he was walking around moony-eyed with his girlfriends, you know, looking up at the sky, holding hands with a girl. 30 years, this younger sort of, um, what's going on here? Um, and it turns out they're borrowing money from some bloke with a weird name out of India. Well, I mean, India's not noted for being one of the sources of capital <laughs> you know, in the world, not in those days anyway. Um, and the whole thing was really scary. I mean, this is like a government completely out of control. Um, Whitlam, for some reason, thought it was a good idea to pick a fight with America at every 10 minutes as well. And, uh, <clears throat> and he was soft on communism, which in that period, you know, you've got to understand that Stalin was just finishing off murdering 28 million people and Mao Zedong was still murdering. He hadn't reached his 48 million that he uh, murdered while he was there. Um, that's the history books. I don't know if it's true or not. All I can do is tell you the historical record reads that these two monsters and every year they're taking a new country. So, you know, being soft on communism, that was not a good thing to be in those days. Uh, the terror that existed with nearly half the world, people on earth under communism. But that was another element to it. But, but still, I, 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 looking back on it when I was writing this book, I just didn't think there was enough rationale in there to justify um, my hatred. Um, but with Joe, yeah, I, I mean, there, there was a lot about leadership. You know, he was taking a position on developing our state and producing jobs and prosperity for everybody, and he really was doing that successfully. So, so you know, you had to feel that like, get out there and you know back him up. What was Joe Bjorki Peterson like to work with close up? What was what sort of a person was he, and what sort of a leader was he? Very humble bloke. You know, never had a picture of himself as being an important person. If you're at an afternoon tea. You had to stop Joe from picking up the teapot and going and pouring everyone's tea out for them, you know, and getting chairs, you know. Um, uh, a naturally very humble person from a very humble background. Of course, he lived in a shed for two years of his life. They were very poor people. And, um, and he died a very poor person, a little tiny veneer house. I was measuring one of my relatives' living room, and uh, their living room was actually bigger than his house that he'd lived and died in. So, yeah, very, very humble person, but um, had a ruthless brutality when it was required that was excessive at times. There were some things that he did 
that he should have been damned well ashamed of. Um, Tell me about that. What, what's an example of that? example of that was the stand-up brawl with the Sequeb workers, which we were fully justified. And, uh, and I, we had a big KP function last night. All the ETU blokes are there. Stewie Trail. He's a real good mate of mine. Uh, he's one of the I'm number two, I think, now in the ETU in Queensland. But, um, but Stewie's there. He said, you know, on, on one occasion on the television, he said, you, you bastard, you were a party to what was done to our workers, you know. And, uh, and I said I was. And I don't want to say I was a party to it because in the end I was the only minister left backing Joe in that dispute. But I was on the workers' side until their outrageous demands started to affect the price of electricity. Now, we only had an aluminium industry here, 40,000 jobs in the state, depended upon cheap electricity. And if you started to have a runaway union demands um, and then backing them up with strikes and stoppages, where they had real power, you'd turn the lights out in Brisbane. But behind the scenes, in fairness to myself on that issue, my opinion was we had, we had intermediaries. Uh, Lou Edwards was the leader of the Liberal Party then and he was a, from a union background. I'd briefly been a union spokesman. I wasn't really a delegate or anything like that. But um, uh, but he, he went through uh, his resources. He was a delegate at the ETU, Lou Edwards. He's a doctor later on in life and he was the treasurer of Queensland. And he couldn't get any sense into him. I went through unions that I was heavily involved with and uh, said if they turn the lights on for one day, this is all over Red Rover, right? Joe has not got the numbers in Cabinet. No? They've just got to turn the lights on. But they were so bloody-minded, and I might also say so bloody stupid and driven by class hatred, uh, that they kept the lights off. So Joe won. And this is that, – that was good. I mean, up to that point, Joe was a good guy, right? But to take their superannuation off him – no, sorry – you know, How did he justify that? He didn't. He just did it. Out of spite? No, brutality. Uh, worse than spite. Uh, he had a streak of, of brutality. And, you know, they said that about Peter Cridlin, you know. Um, well, you want to be a ruler, you have to have an element of brutality. But I just think he went, you know, appallingly too far. I, to this very day, feel shame that I was embarrassed, to, and, and embarrassment at, at you know, what happened in the end, not not the battle. I, I was on his side throughout the battle. But but the end game, I would never have done that in a million years. And and it's very much to his condemnation that he did that. But, um, but you know, put up your hands all those that haven't done something that they regret in life. Do you um, really think you have to have an element of brutality to be an effective leader? Oh, yes, I do. Yes, do I do. You, do and, I think, and I think Peter Cridlin was a good example of that. Uh, I think it's one of those things that I've liked a bit. Um, strangely enough, um, there'll be a lot of those. I can point out a number of times where I've been brutal beyond belief. And uh, and also, and you know, this is not very Christian, but, but you know, when a bloke does something really bad, I have an enormous memory and an enormous capacity to get even. There was a senator here who lived for his hatred of me. And uh, when he retired last year, um, they said, what were your two achievements? I can't remember what the other thing was. It was petty beyond belief. But the second one was that I almost got Bob Catter defeated. That was his two achievements. In a career. In 40 years in, in, the, in the Senate. You know, but that'll give you some of the je- hatreds that I generate. But, uh, but you know, unlike him, you know, um, 
Yeah, I took out Deputy Premier. Yes, I took out a Premier. Yes, I took out a Deputy Prime Minister. Yes, I did. And um, I never even thought twice about it, you know. Um, they had it coming and they thought that they could do this and get away with it. Well, you're going to find out that you can't. And and that's, you know, I, I represent an area. We have no power. We have no super rich people in our area. We have no people that have real power in the nation. Um, we have nothing to fight with except the fear that we will go after you, you know, that there will be retribution. Um, and that is an extremely powerful weapon. Well, you were a member of Sir Joe Bjorka-Peterson's government for 18 years and a, a minister for nine. What is that government's place in Queensland's history? Um, let Peter Beatty uh, talk. At Joe's, when he gave Joe's panegyric at the state funeral, he said this man gave to Queensland and Australia um, our coal industry. That industry has been the mainstay of the Australian economy now for 30 years. That was 10 years ago. So it's been the mainstay of the Australian economy for 40 years. And now the Australian economy is unravelling big time. It's because coal is no longer the mainstay. We're under terrific competitive pressures from countries like Indonesia, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, Africa. Um, they've all got huge coal reserves. Thank goodness Brazil hasn't. <laughs> so the party's over, but... For arguably 60 years, the economy of Australia has been carried by the coal industry. And whilst I would give the primary credit, as I did in my history book, um, to Les Thies, there is no way it would ever have happened without Jockey Peterson. Um, we built 5,500 kilometres of railway lines into the coal fields with government money. Um, we took risks, we borrowed huge, and we did that to open up the coal fields and provide work and prosperity for our people. And um, we had the most highly paid workers in the world, in Queensland, and until um, the day that I die, that'll be one of my greatest boasts. Now, that was coal industry. The tourism industry, yeah, I mean, they just created that out of nothing. Once again, I would look at blokes like Keith Williams and the much maligned Christopher Scase. Those people were very, very much Paul Kamsler and Cairns, very much at the uh, basis of how that industry was built. But again, they would have achieved nothing if Pachocki Peterson hadn't been there. And um, and again, Peter Beattie quite rightly attributed the uh, tourism industry of the state to Pachocki Peterson. He should also have attributed the aluminium industry. But, you know, two out of three is pretty good, Pete. You know, that's pretty good. And it was a very honourable thing that he did. You know, hockey did the same thing last week, Joe Hockey and praising um, Kevin Rudd on the NBN, which I think he deserves great praise for. But Hockey did the same thing. But, uh, uh, yeah, but you talk about leadership and, you know, I, Joe mentored me a lot. I, you know, he nominated myself, um, another bloke called Lynn Powell, to take over. It would have been Lynn. Lynn, Lynn was really hungry for the job. And I just, you know, I would have had the power. But um, most certainly Lynn would have had the glory. And um, But Lynn was a good man. He'd have been a good... Premier, but anyway, forget about that. But but he said, Bob, when I make a decision, I say, what is the right thing to do? What is the wrong thing to do? And then I do the right thing. That's how I make my decisions. And I think that's a pretty fair call. I mean, sometimes when he said, 
Well, that was the right thing to do. I wouldn't agree with him. I would violently disagree with him. That was the wrong thing to do. But he did what he thought was the right thing to do. And I, you could see that when he came into office, he tried to be a politician, and then he just thought, this is hopeless. I'm hopeless as a politician. I'll just do what I think is the right thing to do. What about the legacy of the way it all ended for Sir Joe? Is it is it fair to talk about all of the achievements without talking about the ending? Is is that significant in Queensland's history? I um, had a young bloke, a very interesting young bloke actually, and he stood up at the Melbourne Institute. When they released my book, we had uh, over a 1,000 at the uh, uh, Sydney Book Festival. Um, Kevin Rudd launched the book there and um, we had over a 1,000. We turned away about 200. We had 670, but that's all the hall would hold in Melbourne, at the Melbourne Institute, where Barry Cassidy launched the book. And, uh, and again, we turned away about 200. But this young bloke got up and he said, in your history of Australia, all your heroes seem to be corrupt. And he was referring to Red Ted Theodore, who occupies maybe a fifth of the entire history of Australia, as so he should. You know, I said, Malcolm Fraser was asked who his heroes were. He said, the American, Roosevelt, and the Australian, Edward Granville, Theodore. Keating was asked who his heroes were. He said, J.T. Lang and Ted Theodore. Bobby Caddis, McEwen and Theodore on his wall. Jamie Packer came into my office, saw Theodore's picture on the wall, gave me 250000 the next day, <laughs> you know, for a party. Um, because Theodore was his great-grandfather's closest friend. He, um, more than anyone else, what you see out there, which we call Australia, was put there by Red Ted Theodore. And um, you couldn't get more unlike people than Malcolm Fraser and Paul Keating and I. You just couldn't on the planet find three more unlike people. There's one thing we do agree on. Uh, so, so going back to um, the question, the bloke asked, what, you know, your heroes seem to be, and I mean, the book is about... Kokoda Trail, and the book is also about the great men like Essington Lewis that built the steel industry in Australia, Lawrence Hartnett, a bit manufacturing in the Holden motor car, and bless these who created the coal industry. I wouldn't have done it without Jockey Peterson, but, but you know, he more than Jockey Peterson deserved the credit. And um, it's, it's about them. But if you sort of look at the political people, well, yes, Theodore. He was up on charges all of his life. In fact, if you go to his hometown, to the utter shame of that council, um, they depict Theodore as a crook and a criminal. They don't depict him as the man who created Australia. They depict him as a crook and a criminal. Um, that's his own hometown. So uh, he has this image of being a crook and a criminal and Mangana scandal hounded him for his entire political life. Um, in his last election campaign, you know, um, they used to sing the song, Yes, we have no manganas today. The word's bananas, they took it out for manganas. Um, uh, so it hounded him all of his life. Russell Hins was charged with corruption and uh, on the evidence, I don't think there's any doubt that Russell had been had taken corrupt payments. He was never convicted. He died um, before he ever went to court. Um, and uh, the third one was Jockey Peterson. I think if you ask nine out of ten people in um, Queensland, you said, Jockey Peterson, what's the first word that comes into your head? They would say corruption. Well, you know, was the man corrupt? Did he take corrupt payments? Well, he lived in a little brick veneer home and was technically bankrupt when he died. 
He had no money at all. So clearly he'd taken no monetary payments at all. Did he take money for his political party and his political ambitions for his state and his party? Yes, absolutely. Um, but I'll let for others judge. The good Lord can judge whether, you know, it's good, bad or evil, someone else can judge. But when I wrote that book, I wonder, I'm not interested really in Hinsey's corruption, which was just utter irresponsibility for which he richly deserved, unfortunately and sadly, to do a stretch in jail. But was he an evil person? Absolutely not. Um, was he a good person? Yeah, he'll go to heaven. Hinsey, he will spend a lot of time in purgatory. But <laughs> um, because look at the good things that this man did. Look at his sympathy and empathy. Um, and, and just to give you why I have such great respect, and again, you might use the word leadership that Russell Hintz had, there were 3,000 people turned up for his funeral when he'd been charged with corruption at the world's greatest event, the opening of um, a big resort on the Gold Coast, Mike Gore's resort. There were 42,000 people there to hear Frank Sinatra, Whitney Houston and Peter Allen singing. But he publicly thanked Majorky Peterson. There was thunderous applause. Joe was, under, um, was charged with corruption. Uh, number two was um, the good Lord, God, and there was, you know, thunderous applause. And his third person he wanted to thank was our local member of parliament, um, Russell Hens. The crowd stood up and gave a standing ovation for seven minutes because they said, to the valley to you, this is a good man. It's a good Australian. We love him, right? Yeah, he's done something bad and he's just kicking the head, no doubt about that. But when you add up, but, but I had 11 deaths on the highway and no other minister in my lifetime would have done this. He said, yeah, right, I will fix them up. You go and tell them to fix up. No, 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 Russell, why don't you come up there now? What do you mean now? All right, well, next month, fill it in next month. No, 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 this week. Hey, you're not serious? I said, this week. Oh, how many people have died? I said, 11 in five months on the stretch of highway. 11. Oh, better go up. He gets on the plane the next day. We're up there. And we go to the first bridge, this narrow bridge. And he said, is, is the engineer? And this poor little bloke went over. You know, and, and he said, he used a lot of language, which I can't use in front of Anne, right? Obscenity after obscenity. His face was red and he was shaking with rage. He said, how many people died? Cutter, you tell me how many? 11, 11. Well, that's on your conscience, Sonny, you little. And then he went into another string of obscenities. Now he said, I am giving you to Friday to have narrowing plates with reflector tape, narrowing plates with reflector tape on every one of these seven bridges, right? And by the end of next month, these bridges will be completely replaced by two-lane bridges, right? You get out of my sight. No, don't get out of sight. Go and get a pick and shovel and start right now, Sonny, because it better be done. It better be done. He didn't sack the bloke. He didn't sack the bloke. He terrorised him. Within, by the end of that month, the guardrails were up. Um, within three months, not two months, but within three months, the bridges have been replaced, right, and the lives have been saved. But it was his passionate fury that his fellow Australians had died because this little bastard didn't have the competence 
or the care to go out there. And so you're coming in on 130 kilometre an hour. There's no speed guns in those days. 130 kilometre an hour highway. And suddenly you're on a single lane bridge with a 2,000 car a day car count. You know, I mean, the bloke should have been, he should have gone over and bashed him, you know. Uh, and, and I thought he was going to do that at one stage. And I'm sure the bloke wet his pants. He was so bloody scared, you know. But the point of the story is, why did they love Hintz? Because he cared about his fellow Australians. When he saw them in pain, he reacted. And he reacted with great intellectual sophistication. Um, they call it Mission Beach Syndrome. So all these super rich people like Dame Zara Holt and, you know, 007, Sean Connery's wife, um, they all went and lived at this magnificent Mission Beach. Well, they're all railway fiddlers. They'd got fishing huts down there and, and got a, you know, a... A free old title on, the, on their fishing hut, <laughs> where they were just, um, and uh, and suddenly they're paying no rates at all. Well, suddenly all the super rich of Australia, um, Helen Wiltshire, the famous artist, they're all descending on Mission Beach. Well, uh, you know, prices went through the roof, and of course the rates went through the roof. And these poor little beggars couldn't afford five, ten thousand dollars a year in rates. They were being pushed out in the street, and I mean. You know, a couple of us took the thing up with Hinsey. But, you know, I mean, he sat down, thought about it, and realised, hey, this is really bad. You know, and he introduced a new system of rating that slowed that speed thing down, you know, so that the poor little fettlers didn't get kicked out in the street. But I could give you hundreds of examples of that. And that was why the people loved him, why the people followed him, why people will fight you if you say a bad word about him, even though... The beggar undoubtedly was taking money off Erskew. Um, so, again, when you're talking about leadership, you know why a bloke like myself, who never had a trace or blemish up to date um, um, in 41 years in politics, but why I would be such, uh, you know, pick out Hensey as my idea of an ideal politician. But those sort of human traits that made him so empathetic to his fellow man the same sort of human traits that led him, you know, George had some re, re, uh, zonings to do and uh, he I gave George, Georgie a ring, you know, and Georgie had to give him some money. Well, I mean, Georgie came out of Sydney where this is the way business is done all the time. And um, so, so, you know, when you say the way Jockey Peterson ended up, well, it was the same way Theodore ended up. But what do the history books say? It's the most important person in Australian history. This bloke did more contributed more for the welfare, prosperity, identity, pride and uh, and way of all the good things about our way of living than any other person in this nation's history. And the fact that he'd be remembered. But because his enemies, every time he did something good, they hated him more and more and more. Bob, in, uh, in 2010, you, Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor essentially decided who would govern Australia in a hung parliament. Tell us about that period. Was it one of the more challenging periods in your political career? I, uh, the thing that hits me most is um, Ian Causey, who's a very good friend of mine in the federal parliament, I said, what's this Windsor like? He was an independent state parliament. And there are rumours that he might go federal. He said, he's a good guy, you know, the... National Party line. He's similar to you in that he left yeah, the National Party. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah. Um, but Causley said he's a good guy. Now, Causley was the number two in the National Party 
in New South Wales and government, but Causley was a good guy and an honest guy. And uh, he said he's a good guy. And um, when he came into the federal parliament, that was my opinion of him as well. He's a good guy. And uh, every afternoon, most of go down question time in those days. I don't now, but I did then. And we'd go have a cup of coffee together, talk things over. We're very good friends. I'd ring him up. I'm my office would. Um, how are you going to vote on this? And he'd say, yeah, I'm going to vote this way, but I wouldn't if I was you because, you know, um, issues appertaining to the sugar industry or some bloody thing. And uh, uh, so very, very good friends, very good friends. Uh, I'd go out to dinner at least once a week together. When, after that election, Tony never spoke a civil word to me. Um, Tony Windsor? Yep, never spoke a civil word to me. Rob Oakeshott always disliked me and um, went out of his way to indicate to me that he disliked me. I don't know why, but he did. But not Tony. But after that election, I don't know what went on in his head. He just completely changed. Because you went the other way to the way... No, 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 no. In fact, at that stage, until that final three days, I expected that Windsor would go with the LNP and I would go with Labor. Um, I'd put my 20 points up and clearly, if you looked at them, you would think, you know, he'll go Labor, this bloke, those 20 points. You know, the Labor will be far more inclined to give them to him than the Liberals. And um, and Tony always, you know, he said, if it's 50-50, I come out of a Conservative background, if it's 50-50 and I'll vote Conservative, you know, that was always his position, um, favouring the Conservatives over Labor. And um, if he didn't see any issues. Um, but... Why he changed, I don't know. To this very day, I don't know. Johnny Clements was a mutual friend of ours. Uh, Johnny wanted to work for me, but, you know, because I was in Queensland and he's a New South Welshman, uh, he ended up working for Tony. But John and I probably ring each other up once a fortnight uh, to this very day. But he's a chief staff. But, but John really hated the LNP um, and he blinded with his dislike. And, um, and sometimes, in my opinion, apart from been very good bloke. But but I it wasn't that. I mean, he wasn't there. So I don't know what went on in Tony's head. I don't know to this very day what went on in his head. Did you feel a lot of pressure during that process? The, the country was watching you, waiting for you and two other men to decide who our government was. I think, I think, you know, uh, I would never call myself a leader, but I think that I just decide to do what I think. Is the right thing to do, and that's what Jockey Peterson said. Bob, you, you decide what is the right thing, what is the wrong thing, and then you do the right thing. And um, and I suppose he's influenced me there too. Pearl Logan was my great mentor, sort of surrogate mother. My mother died when I was in my early twenties, um, and Pearl would always say, "Bob, you do the right thing." She prayed, read the Gospels and the Bible every day of her life. Um, Pearl, um, she's a knight of the realm, and she's also honorary doctorate from the university are very very her achievements are awesome but uh but they say you do the right thing so i mean i just right oh well you know you got to do the right thing in this situation these are the things that i believe that my area and the country needs for survival and so i put down my 20 points and whoever gets the most ticks gets my backing and um and i was just following that's the right thing to do i'll follow that and if it leads to my political annihilation, well, it won't be the first time that I've walked into my open grave. Oh, he was very heavily influenced by John F. Kennedy wrote 
a book called Profiles and Courage. And it was about people who completely destroyed themselves, walked with their eyes open into their open grave to do what they saw as the right thing. There was none John Calhoun, but the one that leaps to my mind, I greatly admire, was Sam Houston, who was famous for um, the battle after the Alamo and, and, uh, and winning Texas. It's independent, became an independent nation. But um, he voted for the Union for, he backed the American president, Lincoln. He backed Lincoln and he backed the Union. Well, he's the most southern of the states, Texas. And um, he was absolutely vilified in his home state. And he knew that. But funny bloke, you know, he, he was governor of Tennessee, I think, and he just didn't like it. He had a break up with his wife and went bush and became an Indian, um, <laughs> quite literally. And to the day he died, he was still a red Indian. He wasn't. He was of Anglo, entirely Anglo descent, but he just decided he wanted to be an Indian. Yeah, he wanted to be an Indian, so he became an Indian. And I, I always identify these days as often as not as a Colcadoon, you know, so. <laughs> But it's a bit of Sam Houston coming out there. But, but you know, the cold-blooded decision to completely destroy yourself to do was the right thing. And that was Kennedy's book, Profiles in Courage. Each of these men, whatever else, and it was Bobby Kennedy wrote first, he said, whatever else you might say about these men, whether the decision was right or whether it was wrong, there is never any doubt that they thought that was the right thing to do. There was never any doubt that they were walking into their own deathbed of destruction. And Theodore did that in the Great Depression. Theodore, Chifley and Gert. They knew if they went for the creation of money, no one would understand it. They would be politically annihilated. If they didn't do that, their country would have the worst depression of any country on earth. And they did it. And all three of them lost their seat in Parliament. All three. Now, the other two were young enough to make a comeback. Australia, we realised our mistake and made them Prime Ministers of Australia. But there was no guarantee that their lives were ended. I mean, Chifley was an engine driver in the railway. He had no trade to go back to. He had no job to go back to. He just walked into. And um, Curtin had been a very heavily, heavily drinking um, B-grade journalist. You know, I don't mean that in a nasty sense, but he just hadn't been reliable enough to ever get qualified as an A-grade journalist. So both of them, were walking into the complete annihilation in every respect. Uh, Theodore walked away, uh, technically bankrupt. Now, a man of awesome capacity. Within five or six years, he was one of the wealthier men in Australia. <laughs> you know, awesome capacities um, when he's kicked out of politics. But I just sort of say that all three of them, um, you know, as I said in my book, and the actual quote is, um, as Theodore stood up, and gave the greatest speech ever heard in the federal parliament or ever will be heard in the federal parliament with each unassailable logical argument that he put forward. He dug his own personal grave deeper and deeper, but he had to do this to save his country. We talked a little bit earlier about the gulf between the public impression of you and, and who you really are. I'm, and I, I just want to get to the bottom of some of the values there and, um, and point out to you some of the perhaps contradictions that people see. You, you're an unabashed social conservative. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. And yet- I, I think 
Extremism would not be an unreasonable word. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I wouldn't have said that myself. And yet people describe some of your economic views uh, as having a socialist flavour. You're you're against privatisation and deregulation. Uh, No, I would say once again that I I did quite recently on the Greens and I said, um, uh, the Greens bloke wears a vest with the only two people in Parliament that wear three-piece suits. And I said, well, I wear mine because... You know, um, um, in Ma- movie Maverick, you know, um, the uh, actor, um, he, he looked pretty suave in that, you know, waistcoat. Um, he, he was a gunslinger. And, um, but I don't think the Greens bloke would want to emulate a gunslinger. And the second reason is because my clothes are always rumpled and crumpled and uh, my shirt's never ironed, so you know, I can get out of wearing the vest. Well, it wouldn't worry him because he wouldn't have set foot outside of Melbourne. But I said, it is, it is grossly embarrassing for me that we share the extreme left position on all social and industrial, not social, um, all industrial and economic issues. And uh, we are in bed together on the extreme, extreme left. Now, my only consolation is, however embarrassing it is for me, it must be infinitely more embarrassing for them. <laughs> You're talking about Adam Bant there. <laughs> yeah, the Greens, you know. <laughs> So, so it is a fair it is a fair characterisation that some of your economic views are a little oh, on, on a, the social no, no, side. No, 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 very. I mean, it would be a fair call for the media the way they look at things to call extreme left. I mean, my two closest confidants um, were <clears throat> um, Michelle Grattan was interviewing me. She said, "So if you get two senators, and we look like getting two senators up, in all probability you have the balance of power in the Senate." So this will push everything across to the right. And I said, don't write that, don't write that. She said, why not? Well, I said, because, you know, our two biggest financial backers outside of the guns people and that was the ETU in Victoria, Dean Mile, and the CFMEU, um, Michael O'Connor. She said, they're the two biggest extreme lefties in the country. I said, that's why I said, don't write down. It's going to be a pull to the right. She said, well, it'll be a pull to the extreme left. And I said, look, I don't understand all these labels. All I know is I'm a profound believer in collective bargaining, right, collective marketing, whether it's for the farmer or whether it's for the worker. Without that, we will live in grinding poverty in this country and work in conditions that are appalling and extremely dangerous. We will be reduced to the wage levels of Asia and Africa. And that is not exaggeration. And um, and that's what I believe. And uh, so I will fight in the trenches and that's why, you know, I share um, the position with um, the likes of Dean Mile, the most fire-eating, radical uh, industrial leader in the country, and uh, and with that of the CFMEU, traditionally the great leaders and fighters uh, in this area. Um, in the social views, um, I'm not going to go to the arguments here, but, um, you know, on issues like abortion, well, I just... So there's a human being there. It hasn't emerged from the womb, but there's a human being in there. And um, and it's ter- terrible, sad and tragic, and I don't blame the women because, you know, well, I won't go into the arguments, but but I don't blame them. But, but to me, it's terrible, terrible tragedy. And also, we Australians, we're terminal. Um, there's no more final judgment upon a race of people then they simply eliminate themselves from the gene pool. And um, we have a 
when two people die in Australia, they're replaced by 1.7. Well, I'll put it another way. When 20 people die in Australia, they're replaced by 17 people. We're a vanishing race. There'll only be 6 million of us in 100 years' time. 7 million, 7.5 million in 100 years' time. Now, you're saying, oh, our population's growing. Well, it's growing, but it's not with Australians. Yeah, <laughs> these people that we bring in from overseas. And I don't know why, but the people that are being brought in from overseas, the vast overwhelming bulk of them have no democracy, no rule of law, have entirely different spiritual beliefs or value belief systems than, than we have. Um, what do you want to describe it as a Protestant work ethic or whatever you want to describe it as? I don't know why they're bringing in people that are so completely different to the sort of background, and there are exceptions to that. The Sikhs, in fact, are very much a similar background to Australians, and I think one of the reasons they fit in here so well, they the bucks wear the turbans. But, you know, they have had a tradition of rule of law, they're Indians, and uh, they have had a tradition of democracy. They've been a persecuted minority group. Their spiritual belief system is, you know, monotheist um, and very, very similar to Christianity. So, you know, that's why I suppose it's not surprising that they fit in here. They small entrepreneurs and, and farmers. They don't come here looking for a job. They come here to make jobs for other people to work for them. <laughs> and that's why we love them, I suppose. Another perceived contrast in, in what you're, you stand for is your mix of social conservatism and the fact that you've always been a staunch champion of Aboriginal rights. We don't often associate social conservatism with Aboriginal rights. Yeah, and that's why I, you start banning words like left and right around that you're just going to get in a lot of trouble if you're talking about me. Um, and I remember doing a um, Elle McFeast, I, I did four or five of them, but I did one one night, and she said, yeah, Bob's a, a champion of Aboriginal rights. And the crowd laughed, right? She said, no, I'm serious. They laughed again. She said, no, he is famous for what he's done. And then they sort of stopped laughing, you know, thinking, what's going on here? But uh, I passionately support Andrew Forrest, Twiggy Forrest, uphill, down Dale. And um, a lot of his contemporaries and people he works with say, oh, he's hypocrisy with black fellas, you know. And I said, it's not hypocrisy at all. He was bought a school that he went to for eight years of his life were almost all black. What, are you going to have no friends at the school? Was he mixed with the three white kids at the school? His mates, people, and he... He would be friends with those people today. I can tell you absolutely. His, his grandfather, great-grandfather, uh, the two Forrest brothers founded Western Australia. I mean, it's his, it's his homeland, you know, and he's going to look after every single person that, that lives there. You can count on it, you know. Um, but he, his neighbour, a lady whose name I won't mention, she said, Oh, she can't employ Australians. Australians are lazy and they don't work. She'll have to bring people from overseas. Until Australians realise they've got to work for $320 a week, which is the same figure that the Deputy Prime Minister quotes all the time, $8 an hour, which is $320 a week, um, then I'll have to bring my people from overseas. Now, that's what throws me in a bed with CFMEU, the only body that is really seriously fighting against Section 457, the sort of policy that's mining magnet, um, she's not going to employ Australians, she's going to employ people from overseas, to, to, to achieve a $320 a week wage level. She's, she's quite open about it, as is the Deputy Prime Minister, as is the Deputy Prime Minister. He doesn't say it like that. He says, oh, in America they work for $8 an hour. Oh, 
you find me anyone working for $8 an hour in America. Huh, Mexican wetbacks, yeah, that'd be about it. But he keeps saying it, same figure as her, so you know where they come from. Now let's have a look. The neighbour is Andrew Forrest. The next mine in the Pilbara is Forrest. He got 2,000 first Australians, trained them up, nursed them, pleaded with them, the efforts they go to keep them in jobs is unbelievable. And they still got about 600 permanently on the books out of a workforce of two or 3,000. Um, he's got uh, still 600 of those people that he's trained and nursed through and he's, he's got seven people that do nothing else. If they don't turn up for work, they go around and talk to them and argue with them and plead with them. And, and uh, so, so there's the difference between people. But, you know, I know Andrew Forrest, genuine. Well, similarly with me, you know, I mean, most of my school was white fella, but, but probably a third, quarter, what, black fella. But because we're all mixed up in Cloncurry, we refer ourselves as a curry mob, you know, the fact that radio station amount I was called Mob FM. I said, what, what's it called Mob FM? Something to do with mobiles or something. She said, no, the mob, our mob, curry mob. I said, that's good, I like that. But, but oh, I don't know, you know, it's bloody Afghans and, you know, bloody Chinese. Uh, who knows what of out there, you know. Um, so you just call yourself the curry mob. None of us are white, none of us are black. I'm a good example. So I'm just a member of the curry mob. But no, they're my mob, you know. I'll, I'll fight them. I'm just defending my mob. Uh, they're my mob. And um, in my old age, as I say, I love the story of Sam Houston, but, but you know, that, well, why not? But I, two of my very close mates, one was an old, very old Aboriginal bloke, we were in mine, stick mining together, and uh, we, we had a lot of fun and uh, made a bit of money. And, um, but, uh, but Les, he was black as the ace of spades, but, but he's, he was the only black fellow in the camp, the mining camps, as a kid, and all he ever saw was white fellas, and he just assumed he was a white fellow. But in any event, Les considers himself to be white. Now, he's black, but he can well, if Les wants to be a white fella, then he's a white fella. And I, I've a number of times in pubs, you know, because obviously I'm drinking with him, and I said, listen, mate, if Les wants, he's 75 years of age, I'm 23, if Les wants to be a white fella, he's a white fella. You understand that? Now, if you don't understand that, then I'll have to convince you. And it'll be very, very painful for you. There'll be a lot of blood all over the place. And I don't want to hurt you. So if Les wants to be a white fella, he's a white fella. See? Hey, Bobby, cool down, cool down, cool down. Right up, right. That's right. That's cool. That's fine, you know. So, But, but the other black, he's got blonde hair and blue eyes. Black or Phil Ruse. <laughs> he woke up one morning and decided he was full-blood Colcadoon. Now, Rusey is the top knuckle man in the Gulf country. No one's going to argue with Rusey. If he says he's pink, everyone says, that's right, Rusey, yeah, you're pink. You know? <laughs> but intriguingly, to prove his point, he set out with Shanghai, a billy can, a pocket knife and a box of matches, no food, no water, in midsummer to walk 300 kilometres from Kajabi to Camoil. This is to prove not only am I a Colcadoon, I'm the greatest of the Colcadoons. And he did it, and his mate of mine. And I said, Percy, that story's true. He said, uh, yeah, mate. Ah, I did it easy. In fact, he said, when I hit camera, I was going so well, I thought it may as well go on with the eyes on. So he said, that's 600 kilometres in midsummer. Long Curry is the hottest town in Australia. Um, holds the record. And in midsummer, he sets out and without any further water. So he proved his point. But the point of the story is, 
I love the idea of being whatever you want to be. Find me a Cockadoon, you can be a Cockadoon. Why not, you know? And Cockadoons accept you as a Cockadoon. Well, that's fine. Everyone's happy. So I find a lot in my old age, you know, um, I've told I don't want to be cocked in. But, but I'm most certainly in one of the curry mob. And uh, no, I'm just defending my own, own mob, you know. I mean, it's not, you know, because I have some sort of lefty, love the poor and downtrodden, and I detest the do-gooders. I, I come to a position in life where I just hated them, you know. Um, and I thought it was best put by Eric Laws, who ran the department when I was minister. And Laws, he said... I said, yeah, if people ever stand on their own two feet, uh, they won't have a job, you know. The do-good, I said, the do-gooders hate you, Lawsy. And, and, and I said, you know, they ever stand on their own two feet, the black fellas, you know. Uh, the do-gooders won't have a job. And he said, no, nah, no, you don't understand it. You don't understand it. And I said, oh, well, Albert Einstein, you explain it to me. And he said, that's how they define themselves. They are the people that look after the poor and downtrodden. That's how they, their whole self-image centres around looking after poor and downtrodden. It's for them as much as anyone? No, not for them as much as anyone. It's for them, not for the others. Constantly, I could see where their involvement was absolutely disastrous. And it was again and again and again and again. And clearly you could not move away from the proposition that these people are there for themselves to say, I am the do-gooder, I am the saint, all you rich people, you know, you oppress the poor people. Uh, <clears throat> good example. We launched, no, I'll rephrase that, Eric Laws, Black Black, from Sherbrooke, head of the department effectively, is to I see uh, Lester Rosendale, um, Hope File Boy, um, Black Black, um, they decided that all the house would be built by exclusively Indigenous local labour, right? So <clears throat> um, this little group outside Keynes, they occupied my office and I was in absolute fury. I got on the uh, plane, I was up in, at the community within two and a half hours of getting, which was pretty good going, <laughs> if I was in Brisbane, um, within two and a half hours of the community. Called the public meeting, got a loud hail called a public meeting, and, um, and I said, we have launched a policy of housing where you build your own houses, right? You people have chosen not to build your own houses, but to demand that the houses are built for you, right? Now, you have demanded a place where you are entitled to two houses in the next 10 years under the, pro the, the conventional program, right? not the build your own homes program, uh, under the conventional program, you're entitled to two hours over the next 10 years. You think that everyone else should be put at the back of the queue and you should be put at the front of the queue. Now, in fairness to you, it's not you, is it? It's those two skulking, whited sepulchres up the back of the crowd. Go down and hide in the creek where you belong. Hold your head under the water too while you're down there, you piece of vermin. Two white do-gooders. There you do-gooders. There you do-gooders. Alison Anderson, who's a great fiery black leader in the Northern Territory, she's got her own political party now, Alison, a bit mad, but I love her. Um, but she had this white Sheila, and she actually sat, quite good-looking woman too, sat down at Alison's feet, and she'd go out and bring her cakes and tea, and I said, you know, that's the sort of person 
you got to be scared of She said, she is the enemy. Alison knew and understood it. She is the enemy. Um, uh, they also see the black people as different. You know, hey, they're my mob. I don't see them as different. I see the white fellas as different, <laughs> you, know, you know, from where I sit. Um, but they see us as poor and downtrodden, and I don't particularly like being looked at as poor and downtrodden. Um, the Colcadernes held up white invasion for 70 years, and it's all fully documented in my book. Um, the heading is Dis Marlene, and there's a big confrontation over the alcohol, and um, Clarence Waldron was the mayor up there. Uh, he wasn't at that stage, but he, he was before. And Clarence said, you don't come here, up here and say, what's what, and that's that? Dis Marlene, Dis Marlene. It was a great quote. You don't, you don't come up here and say what's what and that's that. This is my land. And Paul, it's like, this they've, my land. they've given me a note that says you need to be finished soon, so I'll, I'll wrap it up as much as I'd love to, to keep chatting. I always finish my interviews by asking my guests the same four questions. David, before you do, there's a theme here, right, that you decide. You decide there's a theme here, a continuous theme, whether I'm talking about Alfred the Great, whether I'm talking about... Ted Theodore, or even Russell Hintz. Um, by the way, Ted Theodore was cleared of every single charge by an inquiry set up by his political opponents. But Hintz, he wouldn't have been. You know, if he hadn't died, he wouldn't have been, I can tell you. And, um, but, but there's a continuous theme here. These blokes passionately loved their fellow Australians um, and they would fight and die for their fellow Australians. And um, they also were people that had passionate beliefs that this is right and this is wrong, right? And, and they acted out on those two sets of beliefs. And that's why I consider Andrew Forrest a great leader of Australia because at all times, you know, he loves his fellow Australians, in this case particularly First Australians, and, uh, and he will fight for them. He is entirely genuine in that. And, and that's, why, that's what makes him a leader. Hinsey was the same. Hinsey, I always get the credit for giving self-management to first Australians. I wasn't. It was Hinsey that gave first self-management. And, um, um, and it's you know, too short to go into, you know, Russell's intervention in those areas, but he showed enormous courage and commitment in fighting the fight for him. And I said, I need you, you know, because I was under terrific attack from Joe initially on this. He turned around and just went back to being an old missionary. He, he was my strongest backer in the end, but at the start he just wanted to sack me on a daily basis. But I went down to Hensley because he's a very powerful member of the government and he because I need his backing. And I said, Hensley, I need your backing on this black fellow business. And I, I can't make it a long story, so I'll just make a short story. He said, yeah, I love the black bastards. He said, I rolled in the gutter truck with them when I was cutting cane. He said, lived side by side with them for half my bloody life when I was cutting cane. Um, yeah, I love the black bastards. You know, but but he did, you know, and he first thing he did when he sort of had a bit of power was to give them self management, you know, set up local government, give them their pride back and their control of their own affairs back. Well wrap it up. This the your your staff are circling like sharks. No, no, no. Bob. No, you got four questions you want I to do. ask. Yeah, four on. quick questions. The Saturday night you most look forward to, an intimate dinner with close friends or a big party with lots of people you know? Big party, I'd reckon. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big party, man. <laughs> Are you most likely to get bogged down in the detail 
or caught daydreaming? Uh, I'd have to be honest, and it hurts to say it, but uh, there's a fair bit of bogging down in the daydreaming. So, so yeah, whilst I do a hell of a lot of, my opponents would say a hell of a lot of daydreaming and aspirational stuff, well, you know, in that wonderful movie, South Pacific, if you don't have a dream, how you ever gonna have a dream come true? That's the <laughs> second or third time he's sung for me, uh, Anne. Okay, second last question. Do you make decisions based on rational thought process or on emotion? Very much so on rationality. I will not take on the guns when the buyback was announced by Howard, the theft of our firearms and disarming of our country and disarming of our individuals in our country, um, taking away their protection. Um, I'll put aside the rhetoric. Um, uh, I stayed out of the debate for a fortnight because I wasn't going to enter into the debate unless I knew I could win the arguments intellectually and rationally. And, um, and once I could see that the huge weight of scientific authority, if you like, uh, the huge weight of the evidence, the huge weight of the logic and power of the intellectual argument, once I'd established that, then I moved. But I wouldn't move, even though I'm a passionate gunman, that my passion was not going to lead me into uh, a firefight where I wasn't going to win the rational debate. Great admirer of Bob Santa Maria, he always said that the debate always must be won at an intellectual level. And that's, very, fa that's fair call. My very last question, I think I know the answer to this. You're going on a road trip. Do you plan the route, book the hotels and know exactly where you're going or do you just get in the car and drive? Uh, now, the, I do. The answer is I do. You know, all that you you do know, what? Is, all, is all planned and, you know, done out, right? And Anne would say that that is an absolute lie. <laughs> you know, that she does that. And then it just all comes apart. What's what's next on, on your agenda, Bob? I have absolutely no idea. Um, <laughs> but, but no, and I suppose, you know, I mean, when I should be, you know, going and see something about politics and probably a little less true these days, but, but in days past, where is he? He's at the bloody rugby league party. But if he was bloody finished at 10 o'clock, I don't finish for Gatta. He'll be there for 2 or 3 o'clock, you know before they throw him out or drag him out or, or some bloody thing, you know. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I just, you know, love the, the parties and being with the mob, you know, and playing up and having fun. Love Thank you so much for your time, Bob. You've been very generous. Lovely to talk to you, David. And that was Bob Catter. He certainly is an interesting character. Of everything I learned about him in the hour and a half we spent together, the strongest memory I will take away is that of his generosity. He gave me so much of his time fending off his staff who were trying to move him along to his next meeting. He made me feel welcome and he engaged in our conversation entirely. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode on the Lessons Learned page from the podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.